remembering the first in-person talk that I gave um, in March at the Forest Refuge, and we could talk through a mask or a face shield, so I thought a face shield might be better. But then in the middle of the talk, I tried to take a drink of water through the face shield. (laughs) I was pretty discombobulated. (laughs) Now I'm pretty used to it. We humans, we do learn. We do adapt. It's, It's one of the great things about our species. That's basically what we're trying to do here is learn, change some of our conditioning, find freer ways of relating to life. So at this hour every day we'll have a, just a chance um, to talk about some of the Buddhist teachings and how they relate to what you're doing here. And um, yeah, getting some pointers. I felt like starting today with what I call the anti-dharma. So sometimes I like to see what the mainstream is thinking and um, uh, find messages that are, are kind of pretty mainstream but not exactly dharma. So sometimes I call them anti-dharma. And the latest, I used to get them on airplanes. That were good places there. But uh, now online I saw one. It was an air freshener commercial. And... Um, so the picture is this person getting, turning on a car, getting into a car and turning it on with, you know, kind of a vast Western view. Um, and the voiceover says, this is what freedom sounds like. So the sound of the car turning on. And then they put an air freshener in the car and they said, this is what freedom smells like. So kind of the popular idea is that freedom is the ability to get away, to get away from it all, to get away from what we want to get away from. Um, And uh, freedom also is to kind of pretty everything up, you know, mask what's unpleasant and try to make everything seem pleasant. And... um, in Buddhism, we don't kind of ascribe to the, you could say, the commonplace understanding of freedom that way. We think that freedom is the uh, ability to inhabit fully here and now with an unencumbered heart, an unencumbered mind, without barriers. Now, maybe you were hoping for the first idea about freedom. Maybe you were hoping that you were coming here to get away from it all. And, uh, you know, it was all going to look kind of pretty. You've probably been disabused of that notion by now, I would imagine, most of you. Um, Occasionally we have retreats where it's really all uh, peaceful and uh, full of bliss. But, But more often... We're working out our freedom. We're uh, seeing how we relate to life and how we get stuck and um, how we can get unstuck. So in our idea of freedom in Buddhism, we don't need to escape. 
We don't need to get somewhere else. We don't even need for it to always look pretty or be easy or pleasant. We're here with this um, wild human life that is said to be full of 10,000 joys and 10,000 sorrows. And all of it's welcome. All of it is our home. We, we arrive here fully at home. Zen master Dogen, one of the most famous Zen masters, from about, I, I can't ever remember exact century, but I believe it's 12th or 13th century um, Japan. He said that awakening is intimacy with all things. Awakening is intimacy with all things. I've always loved that phrase, and it's even a kind of koan for me. Like, what does this mean? And basically, most of my talk is about that, what this means. You could say that intimacy with all things is a way to describe mindfulness. How does that feel? What's the feeling of that phrase, awakening is intimacy with all things? In our description that Greg read last night, we talked about developing intimacy with our own experience. So what does that mean? I looked up intimacy on, online, and it can be described as close familiarity or friendship. Close familiarity. So we start by cultivating this close familiarity with our own experience, with our own selves. Who are we? What are we? We're usually so busy in our daily lives that we don't have time to ask these questions. But here we get this chance to cultivate this intimacy, this close familiarity with our own being. And of course, we can take that and do that in our daily lives. But here, that's like our, 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 our main task, perhaps you could say. And so we orient towards our embodied experience through our senses. And this leads us inwards into the full complexity of being a living, breathing, alive human being. Intimacy is also defined as friendship. Intimacy is really only possible when the heart is kind, when friendship is, is there. When we're judging our experience, we're actually moving away from it. We're putting a barrier in between. So we're nurturing this kind-hearted awareness. George Washington Carver was a botanist and an inventor. 
He was born into slavery in 1864, and as, a, as a, an, an adult free man, he um, had a genius for working with plants to heal. And once he was asked, well, how, do you, how, do, how did you learn everything you know about herbalism and healing and plants? He said, all the flowers talk to me, and so do hundreds of living things in the woods. I learn what I know by watching and loving everything. I love how he didn't just say watching. He said watching and loving everything. That, that, that this love is important and part of our learning. It's part of being able to move closer so that we can learn. I learn what I know by watching and loving everything. So we attempt to the same here in our meditation practice. So this intimacy with our own being, with our own experience, develops as we turn over and over again to what's happening. Not what we think is happening or what should be happening or what would be happening if we were just good meditators, but actually towards what our experience is. So we free our hearts and minds by not turning away, by turning towards the whole catastrophe experiencing our lives with curiosity and warmth. So we're not trying, sometimes meditation is conceived of as trying to create a, a special condition. But in this kind of practice, we're not trying to do that. But rather, we're trying to connect with what is present and true for us in this moment. So this intimacy as a genuine path towards awakening is described very beautifully in a poem by Izumi Shikibu, a Japanese nun, an enlightenment poem. So in many Asian monastic traditions, when one becomes enlightened, one writes a poem. And this is her enlightenment poem. Watching the moon at midnight, solitary, mid-sky. I knew myself completely, no part left out. I knew myself completely, no part left out. We feel the freedom, right, of no part left out, nothing exiled. The peace of the tranquil heart and mind the healing of whatever sense of separation we've created within. So this intimacy with our own experience turns us towards vast, you could say vast inner worlds. And then we also turn out and turn our attention outwards and connect with the world around us, also a vast world. 
developing this intimacy, familiarity with all things. How do we become close to the world around us? By letting it in. The environmentalist Paul Shepard said, to be present in the world means to make space for the world to be present in you. We're really talking about our sense experience, the connection of letting the world in, the sounds, smells, tastes, touch. We receive the sense experience of being embodied. We let life in through our senses, which are actually our portals to the outer world, the portals that connect the inner and the outer. Dogen describes this intimacy like this. Let your heart go out and abide in things. Let things return and abide in your heart. What does that mean? I don't know what it means. (laughs) It's hard to say what it means. (laughs) But it feels right, doesn't it? To me, it feels right. There's something really... I feel what it means. I don't think what it means. I feel what it means. Let your heart go out and abide in things. Let things return and abide in your heart. There's such a a sense of complete belonging and a lack of barriers and freedom, freedom of heart. We could say that that's enlightenment described from the heart. This statement, um, awakening is intimacy with all things. When I first heard it, I thought that's so sweet. And I liked it because it seemed so sweet. (laughs) But I thought about it over time. And yeah, it's sweet, but it's also really deep. It's deeper than it appears on the surface. Because to bring this intimacy to full fruition, we have to look at what separates us, what keeps us from connecting, what blocks this intimacy. And what we see is that what blocks the intimacy within, without, with all things is our old friends, are the three roots of suffering in Buddhism, greed, hatred, and delusion. But in more layperson's language, it's our tendency to want to control this world. What separates us from intimacy, our blocks intimacy, is the controlling or the micromanaging of our world. Trying to make it be pleasant, trying to get rid of the unpleasant, putting the air freshener in our own minds. Um, You know, sometimes it's good to try to manage things. 
It's a good strategy at times, but it's not a good happiness strategy. If we hope that by making things be the way we want them to be, pleasant, get rid of the unpleasant, we're going to be pretty restless because it's a wild world. You've already seen this today, right? It's a wild world. One sitting, maybe you think you're getting it, and the next sitting you can't keep your eyes open. You're like, Greg, you need, you need like toothpicks to open your eyelids. So this intimacy is blocked by our wishes to protect ourselves from the wildness of life. Dullness, we dull our natural vibrancy to protect ourselves from life. So that's part of our practice, is to see how we do that. doesn't mean you're doing practice wrong. It means you're learning. And with mindfulness, we, we start to... Um, one teacher described it as melt. We melt these barriers. We soften. We start to... have the capacity, we grow the capacity to be with the full range of life's experiences the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows. And as our capacity to hold, be with, not react to those experience grows, we don't need to control so much. We don't need to micromanage. We're able to flow and to meet life, to rest, in presence. You're probably not going to finish this weekend, so I just want to... <laughs> I don't want you to um, uh, start demanding of yourself that, that all these barriers dissolve and, and uh, you experience one, oneness with all things. It's a very organic process. And it's slow for most people see it, feel it as slow. But that's good because life's really wild. And it just takes time to build the strength. But that's what we're doing. We're building strength of heart, strength of mind, but not a rigid strength, a flexible strength. Strength more like bamboo, that's, that the winds can come and it doesn't break because it has flexible strength. We're learning to have hearts and minds with kind, flexible strength.
So I want to talk a little bit about what I call thought-based reality and sense-based reality. So I want to get a little bit more specific about what I'm talking about. So when I was young, or in my early teens, I grew up in a family with seven siblings, there were eight of us. And uh, my father liked to take us camping. So he would often take us camping to some land north of Minneapolis, if you haven't already figured out my accent. There you go. Um, <laughs> there you go. <laughs> some certain sentences come out, like Minnesotan. I'm from Minnesota. <laughs> um, anyway, he would take us north of Minneapolis, and we would all bring a friend, so it would be a, quite a tribe usually 14 or 15 kids, and um, we had a great time. We'd play capture the flag and run around in the woods. Um, But what I liked to do, my favorite activity, was to go off to this meadow and sit under a tree, and I did an exercise I called finding myself. And I was trying to figure out who, who and what I was. And what I realized was that if I spent my time lost in thought, just in stories and thought and everything, I didn't feel like I found myself. I would, I would feel some sense of alienation. But when I um, rested in hearing and seeing and smelling and my physical body sitting there, then I would feel like I found myself. And what I didn't really know then is that I was practicing some rudimentary form of vipassana, you you could say, that I was understanding um, how to find myself. Now, I know that doesn't sound very Buddhist. When we talk about not-self, right? What do you mean, find yourself? But when we find ourselves, we, we find out what, who and what we are. And we do develop this understanding of what we call not-self. But it comes through this intimacy of finding ourselves. So what I was exploring was thought-based reality and sense-based reality. And what we see is that thought-based reality, while thoughts are very useful, we don't want to obliterate our capacity to think. Many useful things come out of that. But that when we're lost in the stories of our mind, when we're lost in um, the fabrications of the mind, we see that... um, This intimacy with experience isn't present. So first of all, you might have noticed that in thoughts, we make up many, many stories. You've made up many stories today. And the weirdest thing about thoughts is that when we're not aware of them, we believe these stories that we make up. You know, the craziest things that if your friend told you, you'd say, I don't think so. 
but but because we're lost, there's no awareness. We believe stories, many of them painful, some of them fantasies. And what we see is that when we wake up, when mindfulness is present, we start to have some possibility of landing in our sense-based reality in the present moment where we can learn about life. The kind of learning we're emphasizing in uh, Vipassana meditation isn't, the, isn't intellectual. It's not about figuring things out. It's about actually being with our experience moment by moment by moment to see how it unfolds how we get stuck, how we, we free our hearts and minds. We wish we could think it out, right? Wouldn't that be nice? We love to think. How many people in here love to think? We all love to think. <laughs> we, one of the reasons why we love to think is because this is how we look for security in the world. We hope that we can think our way into happiness. Somebody, I remember who said, I've thought, my, um, I've thought myself into suffering uh, a million times, but I've never once thought my way into happiness. <laughs> but we, we keep hoping. But each time we wake up from a thought story and we're able to just say, oh, not now, let it go, come back to this body experience, we're loosening, you could say we're loosening the power that thought has over us. <laughs> because when we're not aware of, of thought, it has immense power. But when we're aware of it, how much power does it have? Not so much, or sometimes if it's a particularly emotional or sticky, it grabs us again, right? But we have some choice. And we start to understand on a very experiential level that we do not have to believe everything our minds say. I mean, that's obvious if I just say it, but it's different to actually learn it ourselves over and over again that we don't have to believe our thoughts. So we develop this capacity. So each time you come back from thinking, you're strengthening choice. So appreciate that. And the more times it happens in the sitting, the better. <laughs> we tend to think the more times we come back in the sitting or walking or any time, the more times we come back, we tend to think, oh, I'm such a failure. You know, I can't stay with my primary object. No, the more times you come back, that means the less time you're lost. So really appreciate that moment. It's such a powerful moment, that moment of waking up. And we're not trying to stay with our anchor anyway. It's just a tool to help us get here and land in thought and sense-based reality.
So this alternative to thought-based reality, to living in the fabricated stories of the mind, is this embodiment through our senses. We allow our attention to sink fully into this experience of being human through our six sense experiences. And as I was saying in the question and answer period this afternoon, um, it can be helpful to think of receiving these sense experiences. Not like trying to go out to get them, but to receive them. So we receive the sensations of breathing. We receive the sensations in the hand. We receive sounds. We receive the taste of rice. So over and over again, we abandon our thought-created worlds and come back to the sense experience of the present moment. This is intimacy. And we're trying then to understand also the difference between the thought of a breath and actual feeling our breath. So we're used to living life through the medium of our thoughts that it takes time to to understand the difference between the thought of a breath and the feeling of a breath. The thought of a sound and the hearing of a sound. the thought of a taste of rice and the taste of rice. So with time and this soft receptivity, we embody our bodies. We land right here, right now, embodied in this world. So this receptivity, Jacques Lucien was a blind French resistance fighter, and he wrote this autobiography that's fascinating called And There Was Light. He says, being blind, I thought I should have to go out and meet things, but I found that they came to meet me instead. I have never had to go more than halfway. It's a really um, beautiful expression of the trust that, that, that awareness can meet things, that we don't have to go hunt it all down. The world is a co-participant with you, you could say. Um, I never had to go more than halfway. And so as um, the moments of mindfulness with sense contact increase, we find that life becomes more and more alive. A breath, which at first was like, oh, it's a breath. I've seen a million breaths. It starts to become this unfolding experience of different sensations and amazing each breath. 
the taste of a spoon of rice. Most of us think, well, rice doesn't really have much taste. But what's it like from the beginning of a spoonful of rice all the way to the end? It has many different flavors. Sounds become vibrant. The bell, which at first was just dong, over time, over the week, it becomes wong, wong, wong. It, it, it has a whole depth of vibrancy that we didn't notice before. One person said that um, uh, life bec- uh, becomes re-enchanted through meditation practice, and I love that expression. When we experience a world through our minds and through the conceptual mind, it's like we know what things are, so we don't look anymore. kind of ends the story and fixates things and dulls them. But when we settle into our sense experience and the moments of mindfulness line up, uh, things become alive. And uh, you could say the magic of this world becomes apparent to us. Pamela Ayoatunde said, right mindfulness is an experience in witnessing miracles. However, the purpose of mindfulness isn't to re-enchant our lives. That's just one of the beauties of what happens. But in this practice, the purpose of mindfulness and dropping into this sense-based reality is to see deeply the way things are, to understand how is life, or we say what is the nature of life, but that sounds maybe a little more esoteric, but how is this life? So dropping into sense-based Reality, we experience things closer to the truth. In the mind, we make it all up the way we want it to be. But for example, let's say we have a pain in our knee. As we become come closer to it, land moment by moment with that pain, we start to see change, Right? We see that everything is changing all the time. Our thoughts fixate things, but as we get closer, we see that everything is fluid. Everything is um, a verb, not a noun. This is the foundational truth of life that we need to understand if we're going to make peace with the way things are. And then what we see is how we struggle with that truth of change. So my knee was fine, now my knee hurts. I don't like my knee hurting, I want it to stop hurting. And oh, 
wow, that struggle, that stress. So that's the second truth of dukkha. Or the second truth of life, the first one is anicca, impermanence. The second one is dukkha. Stress, dissatisfaction, struggle. And then as we're closer and watch the, the knee pain, we start to see how it's just unfolding conditions. That it arises because conditions come together and it'll change when conditions change. That it's not in my control. That I can't make my knee stop hurting. These are all truths related to anatta, not self. So as we move closer this intimacy with all things, we start to see the true nature of the world that we have been born into, the universe we've chosen, that it's fluid, that, that, that trying to control it is dukkha, is suffering. That we can't rely on conditions to be a certain way for our happiness strategy. And that it's all, um, you could say it all, it's all happening in a vaster space than the, um, our usual tendency to collapse around the experiences of heart, body, and mind and, and um, make them uh, much more <laughs> real in ours. That there's a, relaxation or a spaciousness that grows around the experience. So the experience might be the same, but our experience of the experience is freer. That's a lot to be able to learn, right, from our own experience. And it doesn't matter what your experience is because everything is a Nietzsche, not Taduka. Everything will teach you about that. So it doesn't matter if it's a breath, it doesn't matter if it's a pain in the knee, bliss, sleepiness, thinking, mindfulness of thinking, right? It's all our teacher. So we... The way I say it is we relax the cognitive grip. (laughs) Doesn't it sometimes feel like we're kind of gripped by our thoughts and the tendency to get lost in thinking and want to figure it all out and get it right? And we relax the cognitive grip and we rest in um, reality as it's experienced through our embodied sense experiences. Susan Murphy is one of my um, favorite Zen writers from Australia. She says, gradually softening your usual cognitive means of saving yourself from the unknown 
gives access to a surprising store of trust in something hard to name, neither inside or outside you, reinforced by the sun lighting up the dew on the grass, the air on your face, the creak of the floorboard. A delightfully free and unburdened sense of yourself stepping right into the world just as it is. Finally home in reality and ready to help. What unfolds is a fascinating exploratory and open-ended relationship with reality. So we're learning to trust something else besides for our thinking minds. We're developing trust through this intimacy with all things, starting with right here, this this embodied being we call ourselves. And what grows is, you could call it trust or confidence, definitely freedom, willingness, flexibility, joy, spaciousness. And a deep sense of belonging to everything. Let's just sit for a minute. Awakening is intimacy with all things. Thank you for your kind attention, and now it's Time to um, practice intimacy with eating, tasting, one of those, smelling, one of those, two of those sense experiences. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.